As parts of the world begin to turn the corner on the COVID-19 pandemic, pressing questions will emerge. For instance, what does a post-pandemic healthcare system look like? Join our Voices Project Dialogue as we take a weekly look at multilateral perspectives, examine the vulnerabilities and opportunities in new policy innovation and reform that COVID-19 in its own way has highlighted. Over the course of the next few weeks and months, policymakers, healthcare providers, academics, and those with stories to tell will come together with representatives from industry, patient associations, and multilateral bodies to examine critical issues facing our region today. And who knows, maybe we'll trigger a new idea, an opportunity that can change things for the better. It really just starts with that one single spark. I'm Rohit Segal, Chief Strategist at The Voices Project, a multilateral advisory based here in Singapore. And I'm joined today by Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor, Yong Lu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore, and Ananta Sait, uh, manager at the Asia Pacific Immunization Coalition. First of all, I just have to say just how delighted I am to have both of you on the show. It's something that I've been waiting for for the longest time. Because I think what we're going to experience in the next few episodes that this is our series of is really understanding what's driving or what's forcing health policies to reconsider its criteria for evaluation and ultimately solution finding. And a lot's been said about the pressures that have been made on you know, health systems and services, the outlook that data and efficacy and clinical evidence seem to be carrying this, this, this lone burden or weight of today's public health burden, uh, has it been shaken to its core? Vaccinations and preventable chronic diseases, the challenges of aging, degenerative comorbidities, all are issues that are going to start requiring innovative, collaborative solutions that go far beyond traditional policy design mechanisms. And I think that's what we're going to be focusing on. Over these next three episodes, of which this is the episode one, as a special three-part series, we're going to try to break down the challenges of what it is to build multiplex policies, the who, the what, the how, and then try to look at a deep dive into a specifically challenging category, one that we've touched upon uh, in the show before on HPV. It's a stubborn vaccine preventable disease that could well deserve a fresh new look at eradication strategies in this region. Ultimately, we're gonna to try to look at deriving some consensus um, who can basically form some sort of a, a sense out of this giant uh, jigsaw puzzle. So with that, let's uh, get into this, uh, I think very, very interesting uh, first episode here. And I guess, Prof, if I can open this up to you, what's your take and what's your feeling? Are health policies widening this gap between scientific credibility and health behaviors, or are we going to see some convergence happening down the road? Thank you very much, uh, Rohit. It's a, it's a pleasure to be part of this very uh, important and interesting series of uh, conversations. Um, the focus of this first episode, as you put it, is are health policies widening the gap between scientific credibility and health behaviors? I think it's easy to um, think or to have the perception that what's happening right now is an illustration of the widening of the gap. But I believe that 
that is probably unique to what we are facing with the pandemic. But ultimately, I believe there will be a convergence. And perhaps by the third episode, we will see how that convergence will happen. But let me begin by just providing you with an overall umbrella context, if you like. Your question has two key operational words, science and behavior. I'm reminded by a lecture that was given by Dr. Julio Frank, who was my boss when I was at WHO and a former Minister of Health in Mexico. And he basically made the very important observation. And the question he asked was, how does science improve health? Okay. And he said it does so in three ways. The first way is the obvious one. Science contributes to new vaccines, new drugs, new diagnostics, new devices, etc. Secondly, science informs policies. But third, and perhaps most important, science empowers people towards more healthy behaviors. So I think that's my overall context. This is what I teach to my students. And it is all about the three coming together. And as you mentioned in your comments, eventually converging so that the, the, the three components are working together uh, synergistically to improve human health. I'll stop that's, for, that's, for that. Yeah. Uh, thank you. No, thanks, thanks, Brooke. I think that's, uh, I mean, I think that's an important way to open this up that many people think of these as two entirely separate ecosystems, the one right. of uh, evidence and science, and then the other one, which is the reactionary uh, behavior towards one's own disease. Now, an example comes to mind uh, some years ago when we were working on a very significant piece of research for uh, metabolic disease, particularly diabetes. And we had doctors across Asia saying just one thing, that no matter how much of efficacy, no matter how much of safety, and no matter how much of other clinical evidence um, I can give uh, to my patients so that they understand that this is a, uh, a disease that can stay in control, it can stay in check. There was this sense of almost resistance or as someone called it, I thought it was a very interesting term to use, a bereavement process, this denial, anger, uh, sense of absolute uh, 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 abject uh, disbelief that how can this invisible, somewhat unseeable disease be coursing through my veins and therefore I need to be now treated as a patient. And I couldn't think of anything more stark in describing how I think sometimes the value of what science and scientific credibility needs to bring to the table somehow needs to also understand that it's up against the human condition of always saying, hang on, it's not me, it can't be me, how could this be happening to me? And does that lead to some degree of complexity in that, in that relationship or paradigm? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's, it, it's a simple thing, you know, I mean, the, the three tenets that Julio Frank addressed, you're talking about policies that inform or improve health at the population level. But I think the last point is about, you know, at the individual level, empowering people with the necessary knowledge to 
promote healthy behaviors at the individual level. Simple things like washing your hands after you go to the toilet, not smoking, practicing safe sex, eating a balanced diet. I mean, that is the value of science in terms of empowering individuals. And that, as, as your episode rightly summarizes, uh, that's the gap that needs to be sort of addressed, you know, uh, population level policies and individual behavior. Because at the end of the day, health is about human behavior. It's as simple as that. Very true, very true. Now, minding the gap is actually a very interesting racing, car racing term. And it's how many uh, famous race car drivers have found their way to uh, you know, all, their, all their wins. And that is you have to spot that gap. Now, Anita, if I, if I switched over to you and asked in that context, what, what do we think is really, a, in that sense, what, what has COVID and this pandemic changed, if in any way, this approachability of health and treatment? So we've just talked a bit about how we can identify certain, you know, I guess, extent of the gap. But at the same time, do you see in the last year, year and a half, that it's actually in a way helped approachability? in how one treats one's health and treatment? Or do you think that there's been a further growing of that accessibility gap? Uh, thanks, firstly, uh, Rohit, for inviting me for the broadcast and, uh, and the discussion so far on minding the gap between uh, science and policy. Um, in terms of approachability uh, of uh, COVID-19 treatment or, or health systems so far, there has definitely been a growing awareness of uh, both the value of vaccines um, and, and of course the value of vaccine in saving lives, but at the same time, uh, there has been vast amounts of disinformation about the vaccine. Um, so in, in both senses, um, I, I think the world um, over the course of the last year and a half or two years has, has realized the importance of a vaccine, uh, vaccines for vaccine present, uh, preventable diseases, uh, but at the same time, um, there has been uh, a growing movement against vaccines and, uh, and this does affect health seeking behaviors as well. Um, so, so we, for instance, we did a study on um, collaboratively with LDK Consulting, which was based on interviews with vaccine policy experts from India, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Uh, and and the, the kind of overwhelming um, uh, sentiment that we, we got from these policy experts was that, um, what, what COVID-19 has done is that it's exposed um, a low health communication capacity and a lot of uh, lack of coordinated efforts across government ministries, uh, for instance. Um, so one of the largest gaps um, in resource-constrained economies has is coordinating communications across regional and national governments. And, and due to the vast kind of geographical and language diversity, uh, diversity in countries like India and Indonesia, for instance, uh, vaccine communication guidelines uh, were not always sufficiently tailored to local sensitivities. And so these countries, um, along with uh, a lack of coordination, have a lack of health system capacity, which, which also translated to healthcare workers not receiving um, adequate training to counter the tide of anti-vaccination narratives. Um, and, and of course, another problem uh, was that um, these governments did not consult or embed uh, behavioral science experts in their process. 
So there's this lack of specialized behavioral teams to provide insights to government bodies on crafting key messages that focus on empathy and building trust at the local, at the local level. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating because in a way that's sort of the crux of this whole sort of program in a way that so much is being said about what uh, this pandemic has exposed. And I mean, my sense is that, well, it's, that's not all bad. I mean, these, these, these sort of fractures under the surface were always there. It took something like this pandemic to expose them for what they are. And if you think of it, as you've described it, it's a mix of what let's say uh, healthcare services or health service providers are able to bring. And look, I mean, it's not easy, lack of resources, lack of access, lacks of, lack of training, that level of disruption that became even more sort of clear, you know, as this, as this last year and a half has sort of come out. What it's done is, as you said, is that it's not just created that disruption or gap, but it's also created a sense of losing traction with, I guess, folks who were contending with a diagnosis midstream, um, with those who should have had their screening, who should have had some sort of a, uh, an awareness of what was going on in their demographic and never did. And it's almost as if that's led to this sense of like the engine went on idle for a little too long, both from a health service provider perspective for no fault, no, no issues. I mean, here they were trying to sort of contend with one of the biggest you know, health disruptions that we have seen in our generation and more. And at the same time, we knew that this region was gonna be one of the epicenters for some of the biggest you know, chronic and non-communicable diseases going around already with lower vaccine uptakes and so on. So I guess Prof, from that perspective, I think as Ananta and we're just sort of outlining here, while the science, scientific and medical, I guess, fraternity is coming together to draw this together, what could be some areas that we could be looking at to bring back some of this disruption that's happened on the behavioral angle, on the fact that folks who were just diagnosed suddenly for six months forgot about the disease while everyone was too busy trying to figure themselves out, or you know, uh, women who should have been getting themselves screened as part of an ongoing program, suddenly those programs were left to the wayside. How do we sort of look at that as a way that would sort of show the risk that carries when these, these sort of two ends don't sort of come together as enough as it should. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And it's also a, a big challenge, obviously, okay? Because I think the medical scientific community, as you've already outlined, is always emphasizing, emphasizing evidence, research, data, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas a lot of the decisions at the personal level is uh, behavioral and importantly, uh, importantly, uh, it's also emotional, right? So in order to bridge the gap, you really need to have sort of an equal level of representation uh, between, you know, sociologists, behavioral scientists, psychologists, uh, as well as the medical community. I think there is, you know, from what I've seen in many different countries in the specific context of overcoming vaccine hesitancy, that's really about changing the behavior of those who are not anti-vaccine, but who are not certain, okay? So that required almost uniformly a quite personal approach to address, you know, what are your concerns? Tell me about it. And, you know, really um, being very empathic about listening to these people about their concerns, which is 
not just about risk, about safety, but about sort of sometimes even religious concerns, as we saw in Malaysia and Indonesia. In fact, in Malaysia, a survey said one of the main reasons for refusal are actually religious concerns. Hmm. Okay, uh, that was done by Professor Zulkifli Ismail in Malaysia just last year. Um, so then, of course, there's this whole issue about misinformation and what people get to inform their behaviors, their decision making. So it's it's a complex challenge that requires uh, almost almost a personalized approach uh, towards um, you know how you would overcome it. And as Heidi Larson said, it's no use throwing scientific facts and data at an issue which is highly emotional and personal. It doesn't stick, simply doesn't stick. Mm. You know, you need much more sort of individual uh, tailored approach. And there was a wonderful quote um, from a survey in Indonesia about these um, people who are hesitant about the vaccine. This was done in a rural area, an elderly lady who uh, was not very well educated. When she was asked, you know, what would, what would it take for you to sort of be more sympathetic to taking the vaccine? And her answer was, was very illuminating to me. She said, I am much more likely to believe someone who looks like me and who speaks like me rather than Minister of Health or Professor Tiki Pang or Director General so-and-so, you know? So it, it really requires a tailor-made approach mm -hmm. to different segments of the community. Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, it's almost as if this level of personalized health or personalized health dialogue has taken on an all-new paradigm. Um, it's almost as if we're trying to play catch-up to where policy design used to sit in almost a sort of top-down handover that right. this is what I'm going to say, this is what I'm telling you, now this is what you will execute into one which is far more fundamental that right. we need to be understanding my relationship with my disease, which is totally different from someone who lives a few hundred kilometers away from me. And therefore, how do I build this understanding or deeper set of perspectives? So one thing that I know, um, Anatha, you got an interesting point of view on this in our last few conversations, that when you think about policy frameworks and the way that um, frameworks of the past versus frameworks of the future, we've talked about relationships of the disease, we've talked about patients and healthcare providers and so on, but there's a couple of missing elements in this whole thing, aren't there? I mean, there's policy will, and therefore, you know, the, 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 the political will to create brave policy that to, let's say, uh, Prof's point of view is that how, how localized and how uh, extensive can we take uh, policies that aren't then just simply you know, your sort of clinically sort of mandates coming down to you as much as is there something that uh, political will or perhaps braver policies can can have some relationship? What, 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 do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, Rohit. So in terms of um, political will, um, uh, our discussions uh, were based on the HPV vaccine. Um, and, uh, and I've been talking to some stakeholders uh, from the Indian government about the HPV vaccines and the concerns around it. Uh, late hey. um, so a lot of these experts cited stigma associated with HP, HPV as a sexually transmitted infection as a major obstacle. 
um, as well as costs. Um, I mean, I can talk about that in detail later. But one of the things that, that has worked uh, really um, in terms of HPV vaccinations in India um, is that it's brought to light that political will plays a huge role. Um, so in Sikkim, for instance, um, which is an in, uh, Indian state, um, the chief minister championed the HPV vaccination program. And uh, despite the availability of the subsidized vaccine through Gavi and UNICEF, um, in other states, political short-termism has led to the vaccine not being included in the state vaccination programs. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons, um, one of my interviewees mentioned that there are no immediate political payoffs um, as, as, as cervical cancer occurs later in life, as opposed to problems arising out of childhood diseases. Um, so, so in terms of that, there's, there's definitely political will, which, which plays a huge role. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so I think it was um, uh, a, a panelist from Thailand who actually said that if we are unable to bring brave policy to the table, one that doesn't look beyond certain political uh, horizons, then we would never be able to look at some of the more uh, longer term uh, diseases that we know we have to contend with. And I think linked to that um, is the financial aspect of it. Now, here, here's a term that uh, has started to be really sort of become paramount. And while it's been around for a while, I haven't heard it being used so often, and that's financial toxicity. Now, financial toxicity, typically in the sense of you know, cancer and cancer treatment, was always something that within Asia, and particularly even in developed parts of Asia, was a, was a contentious issue. That, well, there may be wonderful ways that you know, governments have been able to provide for uh, you know, uh, medical insurance, public, pro publicly provided sort of insurance schemes, and so on. What it didn't account for was some of those more critical long-term care factors, uh, nutrition, food, you know, uh, things about just basic living, quality of life, and things like that. In the context, Prof, of what we've just talked about, um, do you think that this is now or needs to become a almost a, a, a flag to wave to say that if we are going to try and bring together the aspects or reality of clinical priorities? and at the same time, the outcomes for patients and policies driven by that, do we need to be looking closer at the gaps that exist within, I guess, the financial aspects? I mean, something which is omnipresent, isn't it? I mean, one has to somehow manage and pay for uh, this disease. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think that absolutely goes back to your comment earlier about political will, all right? Uh, political will, political commitment to, first of all, acknowledge to be more inclusive in terms of hearing the needs of the people, but not only listening, but actually putting your money where your mouth is, all right? In terms of saying, yes, we hear you, and here are the necessary finances to be able to address those, those gaps. Um, I think you put it nicely that what is absolutely needed is political will and commitment, but I would add to that political courage because this will and commitment is not enough. Courage is important. And you know, leadership at the highest level must have courage. And because of financial considerations, because of having to listen to the people, sort of very democratic, process, which as we all know, can be very messy, okay? You need that courage. And it was Albert Einstein who says, in the context of, of policymaking, 
what is right is not always popular and what is popular is not always right. So you need leaders who are willing to stick their neck out instead of just playing it safe and then bumbling along and say, ah, let's see uh, the standard phrase is, oh, we need more research. We need more data. We need more information. That's a cop out yes. when you're looking at an emergency situation like what we are facing right now. So that's my take on it, you know, political courage, will, commitment. Political courage and will, I, I think uh, you've mentioned, I think that's exactly the right word to use without uh, alarm bells ringing, that we are truly in, a, in an emergency situation on various different aspects. You, we, we cannot be losing two years worth of health policy and, um, you know, health, public health uh, behaviors, and then simply leave that onto, I guess, old frameworks and old ways of doing things. Right. Uh, I, I think there's there's also something that's been coming out from various different corridors uh, around not just WHO, but I think just different funders and donor agencies that, you know, how how are we able to think about the very resourcing and structural issues of health service providers today? And just as we talked about financial aspects, just as we've talked about building behavioral science and brave policies, one of the areas that uh, is, 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 is critical is the fact that it is still a very siloed and fragmented uh, way of serving um, serving disease, I was going to say, but more about serving a patient population. If one patient has uh, a central, let's call it a central disease, and then a whole lot of ancillary comorbidities around that, the challenge of being able to be passed through a public health system is tremendous. And it adds more weight and more pressure when these countries and these communities are coming under more and more debt pressures, more and more under infrastructural issues and the lack of resources. Would you, would you sort of have a point of view that says, well, one of the areas aside, well, alongside brave policy, the need for looking at closer uh, integration with behavior change and so on, is the fact that something needs to be done about the way that our health systems operate today and in some respects allow for greater efficiency for a patient who has to go through, let's face it, a very uncomfortable uh, situation within our, uh, within many uh, health systems today. Yeah, just quickly, I think there is an element of constancy as well as a need for change. Okay, when you look, you referred many times to the healthcare system post-pandemic. The constant in this remains that the healthcare system basically, as WHO has proposed many, many years ago, consists of six building blocks. Human resources, financing, you already mentioned that, medical supplies, service delivery, information, and importantly, leadership and governance. So those six elements are constant. What is needed is what Singapore has done very well. Okay, the healthcare system in the future cannot be solely the purview of the Ministry of Health. If you look at the way the multi-ministry task force, they've elevated health to the level of very close interaction with Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Information and Communication, okay? Ministry of Trade, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, okay? Ministry of Social Welfare. So there is a constant, but there needs to be an elevation of how those six constants are addressed 
at the different levels uh, of, you know, the different, let's say, the different parts of the government that would actually make it work, you know, to get, move away from that silo approach. I think the, the pandemic has made that really very, very clear, the need for that multi-sectoral approach. That's, that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, I think too many times one hears about the issue for health lies at the doorstep of the Ministry of Health. And that's so unfair, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. it takes a, it's such a complex and multilateral sort of requirement and need right, uh, right, right. That, 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 the, that, this, that these sort of six pillars or these six uh, sort of factors that can come together. Do you, do you ever see that they stay constant in themselves or do you see that they get dialed up and dialed down depending on the situation or the, or the place that it's in? Um, yeah, obviously I think each, each country uh, will have its own uh, constraints in terms of uh, capability, capacity, uh, resources. And there will always be competing priorities, you know, between those six building blocks. But to me, they lie at the core of any healthcare system. You know, you can't have lousy information because if you have lousy information, you're going to have problems in securing supplies, you're going to have problem in training your health workforce, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think the pandemic has made it very clear that all six are, let's say, equally important. But obviously, in, in many different countries, uh, some may get higher priority than others, depending on their capacities. And once again, on political uh, will and, and commitment. Mm. Ananta, your, your thoughts to that, and, and, and let me contextualize in, the, in, in what Prof just said, that let's, let's put it in a real-world evidence situation. So we have somebody who's uh, already exhibiting at-risk, uh, you know, sort of metabolic syndrome. Uh, you know, the, 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 it's clear, you know, that there's something not right. There's a, a screening that should be had for certain, let's say, diabetic or early signs of diabetes. The access, the physicality of going to the hospital, being able to get the right screening, to get the right diagnosis after that, uh, the multiple visits to the hospital that are then involved, the blood test, all of that that then goes into it, and then fundamentally living with the disease as best as they can. Do you see that there is, I guess, a in the in the in the context of of, of what you just uncovered, a, a beginning of a change, a, a a situation where perhaps that can begin to get more streamlined. Well, I'm not um, sure how qualified I am to answer that, Rohit, um, but I can, I can try from a communication perspective. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and how, um, you know, in the kind of continuum of care and how patients receive care and, and seek um, screening and treatment, how at least communication can, can play a role. Um, and I was talking about HPV earlier, and, and I'd mentioned that stigma associated with HPV is, is a major obstacle, right? And, uh, and because HPV is a vaccine that's, um, uh, you know, that's administered to adolescents, so parents are critical to, for instance, successful provision of the HPV vaccine. And uh, in, in conservative Asian context, parents are worried about the vaccine's effect on sexual behavior. Uh, and there's also low perceived risk of HPV infection. Um, so at least in, in the communication sense and how um, things at the health system level can change and there's lots of, uh, you know, kind of practices, especially from the COVID-19 vaccine program that can be adapted when it comes to, uh, for instance, the HPV uh, vaccines is providing adequate, clear and accessible information. 
to both parents and adolescents, who in this case are patients, right, uh, about HPV infection, um, vaccine safety, you know, adverse effects, and the appropriate age for, vac for, the, for the vaccine. Um, and, and that's something that a healthcare professional um, can do to reduce concerns and misconceptions. And, uh, and of course, messaging is important. And that's another thing captured by uh, the whole COVID-19 vaccination campaign. Um, you know, in India, for instance, uh, communication on the HPV vaccine has focused on, um, on the vaccine being able to prevent the cancer uh, rather than it being it's that tackling a sexually transmitted, transmitted disease because parents don't want to think about their adolescent girls being sexually active. So the emphasis on the value of vaccine in preventing cancers has been much more effective. Um, and just, um, you know, referencing uh, back to something you were talking about, you were talking about financial um, toxicology. Um, oh, to yes. Oh, sorry. Right. And uh, toxicity. Uh, and how uh, and, and another thing I think communication efforts could do is to address these logistical concerns, for instance, vaccine financing. Um, so in India, the vaccine is prescription only at the moment and quite expensive. Um, and, and this is a huge deterrent. Um, so some states in India, what they've done is that they've gone through the Gavi and UNICEF route to, to provide free vaccines to adolescents. And this has been very successful um, in the states of uh, Sikkim and two districts in Punjab, right? And they were quite strategic in their approach. Um, so they targeted school-going adolescent girls and convinced parents by tapping into the high trust posited in government school teachers in these states. Um, and this was accompanied by the teachers going through extensive communication training um, and the training curriculum being devised by consultation with various stakeholders. So both in terms of communication and engaging stakeholders in the process um, is something that I think is essentially extremely important. Mm -hmm. and, and again, um, kind of community and social mobilization activities and how they then feed into the whole, um, you know, um, health seeking behaviors or seeking care. Um, trends is important as well. I, I think that's that, that adds a huge amount. I think to this to this whole sort of analysis in a way as we are for this uh, particular sort of focus we're doing over three episodes. And what we're trying to do for our listeners, as you can now gauge, is we're we're setting the context, we're setting the foundation for the. Uh, one shouldn't say it's complex. Of course, it's complex, but there are ways and there are means that at least we can begin to identify where are some of those fractures most being felt and what could be some potential uh, ways that uh, these, these situations can be mitigated. L let me ask Prof, uh, I guess a, a last question before we sort of start to wind up this particular episode. And that is something that Ananda just mentioned. And you know, when we talk about the reality that there is um, you know, community mobilization programs and these things were, these things were very, very, uh, you know, uh, often. I mean, they were sort of almost built into our national programs in many countries in Asia. Um, what do you think is this sort of what? What does it mean when we start to emphasize more on bringing back disease awareness, the and understanding that one has to go back to understanding your uh, body and system, and in a way be driven to a clinic or some sort of a, a diagnostic center and be told of how your uh, body is basically doing. Do, do you see that that in itself is gonna be one of the biggest gaps to try and get people to come back again to link with their uh, health service providers or with their own disease? Yes, absolutely. And I think um, I'll just make two quick points regarding that 
question that you raised. I think it's pretty obvious from, from, from many, many examples that this raising of awareness, uh, education, and persuading people in the early stages of disease, especially to start seeking help, okay, is really the underlying philosophy behind universal healthcare and the sustainable development goals. That is to focus on prevention rather than dealing with the disease when it's so far advanced and a big burden on the healthcare system. So it is obvious that I think the community level approach of, of education awareness of having uh, primary care uh, clinics rather than specialist centers at the community level uh, accessible to especially vulnerable groups, the elderly, the not so educated. Okay, I think that's uh, sort of a standard sort of a grassroots uh, kind of approach tailored to, to different languages, to different uh, educational levels, etc. Mobilizing family members to be part of, of this effort. Um, I, I, I think, I think that's, that's, that's uh, the underlying issue and where obviously um, uh, civil society organizations, uh, professional societies, uh, GPs, for example, family physicians, can play a very important role. So, so that's one thing in terms of what you say, how do you get them to be more proactive in, in searching for it? But I don't believe that's enough. I think you need another step in which the concerns of these people, okay, in terms of um, how they have their voices heard, should also filter upwards to the people who actually make policy, okay? So, now we're getting into solutions, right? <laughs> Which you say you want to save for uh, episodes two and three, whereas you wanted to focus just on gaps and challenges. So, 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 so that's the gap, you know, how do you develop community approaches? And of course, in communities and countries where it's available, as we all know, there is quite a big push towards optimizing the use of digital health technologies, including telemedicine. Okay, now in a country like, even in a country like Singapore, uh, uh, it's not a given that every person has access to that kind of technology, but the potential is there. And with the improvement in technology, improvement in access, that could be a very powerful tool uh, in the future. But I think there's no escaping, you know, uh, a grassroots approach, uh, you know, the, the, the simple message, prevention is better than cure. Mm. Well, I mean, in a way that's a great, uh... Uh, leave behind and a, and, a, and a teaser for what's to come in our second right. episode. And uh, in a way, we've uh, selected one that's, uh, I think, as Ananta mentioned, uh, is, a, is a real conundrum. It's a real issue. That is HPV. Right. All that's been thrown at it uh, pre-pandemic and all of the various different uh, opportunities to save uh, women from uh, uh, contracting this disease and all of that. Yet, it is still something that uh, uh, we have to contend with. And that's what our second episode is going to go deeper into to try and build out some of these parameters that we've just talked about here and uh, understand it from a particular one angle idea that if we were to try and apply some of these uh, challenges and opportunities to HPV, uh, could we not find a way through at least with one that could then become possibly, you know, solutions for others. Uh, with that, I think we've come to the close of our uh, time. I mean, this is obviously a topic that we could 
talk for at least another hour uh, to talk about all the issues, but we're not here to talk about the glass half empty. It's all about the glass half full and finding ways that we can reach a consensus with folks who do this um, constantly. They, they uh, People like Prof Dickey and Ananta are living this and uh, fulfilling, I guess, a lot of the um, uh, issues that we face every day. And I wanna thank you both again so much uh, for making this time. Uh, we'll have Prof Dickey back again for episodes two and three. Uh, we will be also joined with some very different uh, speakers. And uh, I guess we'll have an interesting debate in the next, uh, in the next few episodes. With that, uh, thank you so much to all the listeners uh, for tuning in to the Voices Project Dialogue series. And as I always say, it's all about making those little differences. It just takes one step at a time. Stay safe, stay safe, and we will be, you'll be listening to us again very soon. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.